Welcome to Financial Frameworks. Financial Frameworks' goal is to help you increase your financial decision-making skills, building on what you already know. This podcast is one of a series about holding on to your money when considering investing in companies that present themselves as ESG firms, companies asserting the environmental, societal, and governance methods of doing business. Today, we're finishing a review of four different approaches to defining and measuring ESG factors for investment purposes, and we'll road test the four approaches to see how useful each one is. The primary purpose here is to produce criteria that you and I can use to evaluate an investment. The second purpose is to provide you with both contextual knowledge and practical tools for grounding the ESG elements of your investments. If you don't know whether your yardstick is any good, to paraphrase a friend of mine, this context is really important because if you don't know whether your yardstick is any good, how do you know what you've got? That's the how-to part of this podcast. At the conclusion, I'll also talk about some of the underlying long-term whys that are beyond the immediate reasons for ESG being important. Again, we're looking at ESG principles because of the interest in the market, the incredible growth of the amount of funds that are presented as ESG type funds, and also because I believe that as we develop more sophisticated cost and production cost measuring tools for what used to be called external costs, more investors will adopt this broader ESG approach. Also, it's a new element, ESG is a new element in the paradigm of investing. And since it's still being built, it's a safe bet that there will be winners and losers in this area. Winners using solid ESG metrics that add to their profitability and losers not so much. And wouldn't it be nice if you and I had the skill set and frameworks in place to identify those winners ahead of time? The idea of measuring investment factors other than straight profit, loss, return on investment, has been in existence for a while, but now institutions, standards organizations, and others are catching up with this reality and are focusing more carefully on what it actually means to be ESG and to measure it in a meaningful way. We want to be ahead of the curve, not behind it. So what we've talked about in the previous podcasts, we looked at how to find ESG rated stocks in mutual funds. We looked at two specific stocks, Next Era Energy and Microsoft, as different types of ESG stocks, and we evaluated them for growth and safety. Those are the two big financial criteria for me, growth and safety. Then we move to the meat of what will lead to our conclusions today. We discussed the context and issues around what it means to be an ESG stock, and we looked at four approaches. We looked at what the United Nations uses in their principles for responsible investing, We looked at a report from the NYU Stern School. Third, we looked at BlackRock because they present themselves as being very sensitive to ESG issues. And then we looked at a very specific set of indicators called key performance indicators to measure ESG effectiveness. So let's see what our criteria and our research produces. And let's see if applying these criteria is clear, it's valid, and it doesn't take an unreasonable amount of time. Because if it takes too long, you and I won't use it. 
And also remember that we're looking primarily at greenhouse gases. Okay, the United Nations has a set of principles for responsible investing. These principles are based on the greenhouse gas protocol that was developed for them for the UN in 1998. Greenhouse gas protocol data is collected, analyzed, and disseminated by a firm called CDP. Per their website, CDP is a not-for-profit charity that runs the global disclosure system for investors, companies, cities, states, and regions to manage their environmental impacts. Over the past 20 years, we have created a system that has resulted in unparalleled engagement on environmental issues worldwide. CDP produces ratings from the data they collect and analyze. Continuing with our example of Microsoft, Microsoft gets an A from CDP in three areas, climate, forests, and water. That's what CDP measures. The social and governance metrics are contained within those three categories, but are not specifically cited. In researching the CDP rating system, I found that approximately 19,000 companies and governmental entities provide ESG disclosures to CDP. Their rating system, A, B, etc., is simplistic. However, after reviewing their reporting techniques, their methodology, their data collection techniques, and the list of companies that they cover, I concluded that an investor can use the CDP ratings as reliable and meaningful. The simplicity of the final output, a letter grade, does not mean that the review is shallow or simplistic. So let's say that you're willing to go with the CDP rating but want more detailed information. My suggestion and the approach I will use would be to go directly to the company's website or Microsoft's sustainability report that we looked at in an earlier podcast. Again, I'll post all of the citations on my website, finframeworks.com. Let's say that you don't need additional information and you simply want a quick vetting process. The CDP rating is sufficient, it's rigorous, it's solid, and combining that with the safety and growth metrics we've discussed earlier, you're on solid ground. The Stern School Report. We looked at the Stern School Report because of its breadth. It cited that it reviewed over 1,000 studies between 2016 and 2021, and it concluded that 58% of the ESG firms were profitable and that they produced ESG data that indicated their efforts were meaningful. While the Stern School Report is largely academic and statistical, and it was really more descriptive than prescriptive, they suggested three indicators to measure ESG investment. Return on assets, return on equity, and the Sharpe ratio. Return on assets and return on equity are pretty common, so that's not hard to do. Then we'll talk briefly about the Sharpe ratio. Return on assets is net income divided by total assets. It measures the profit per dollar of worth of the company's assets. It's a broader measure than ROI, return on investments, because it uses all assets as the denominator, and it gives an indication as to whether a company's means of production are being well used. ROE, or return on equity, is net income divided by total equity. This measure is sometimes used to determine how efficient management has been in using profits to create future revenues, as the company's equity is used as the base. Where return on assets compared income to total assets, excluding a company's liabilities, return on equity 
excludes both assets and liabilities. It's narrower and it measures profits against what the company owns of itself. Both ROA and ROE are often used to compare like companies to each other. Ford, GM, Tesla is a good example. You can make a comparative assessment there because you're comparing apples to apples. They're within the same industry segment. But if you tried to compare Microsoft, whose primary assets are people and real estate, with its crosstown neighbor Boeing, which is a manufacturing entity with massive materials inventories, you'll get two numbers, but they are not necessarily uh, meaningful in making the comparison. Their costs and revenue streams are just too different. Now we get to the ESG measuring. We've looked at the financial piece. The Stern report suggests that using the Sharpe ratio to assess ESG results is appropriate. Basically, the report considers ESG to be a risk, and the Sharpe ratio is a measurement of such, and they want you to evaluate the investment by quantifying this risk to future returns. A brief summary, and we'll go light on the math, and I will post an example on my website, because verbally describing the math I don't think uh, is useful. The Sharpe ratio in pure math terms, is a formula that looks at the firm's annual return, let's say it's 18%, and it looks at the variances in that annual profitability month to month. Let's say some months the profitability was 24%, some months the profitability was 8%. Big swings. The Sharpe ratio looks at the annual profitability and divides it by a standard deviation on the monthly, what they call excess returns. That is a very high level description of the Sharpe ratio, and it's enough for this podcast because the underlying reality is that the Stern School report is basically saying that all ESG efforts will be treated from a risk assessment approach and in statistical terms. There's no consideration to what I would call a cost-benefit or an impact of outcomes analysis. You don't know what the effect of the ESG efforts are. You don't have a sense of what they cost. There's no linkage there. I think that the report is methodologically sound, and I would recommend it to those who prefer a purely statistical analysis of ESG or investing. So let's look at uh, the summary in Stern School Metrics. Microsoft's return on assets was 15.22% for the last 12 months. Their ROE Return on equity was approximately 43% for the same period. Those are good numbers. I calculated a Sharpe ratio and I got 1.3. The Sharpe ratio literature indicates that that is a profitable and a positive result for Microsoft. However, after researching this method for you and me, because I'm always looking for new ways to look at things and analyze realities, I think this method is just too much work for the reward. I think that ROA and ROE are too narrow to measure profitability, growth, and safety in an investment. And the sharp ratio says nothing about environmental impact, and there's no linkage. However, there are a number of reasons why our time here has not been ill-spent, considering the Stern School report. The breadth I cited earlier, the profitability numbers that I cited earlier. And finally, you and I are performing comparative research. We're comparing multiple methods of analyzing ESG, we're applying the same criteria to each, and we want to know what works because we don't know what works. If we hadn't done that research, we wouldn't understand as much as we do now. 
analyzing is as much about knowing what not to use and knowing what perceptions to eliminate as it is in using the right tools. Another way to describe the utility of the Stern research is to put it in the perspective of what I used to tell my students. When I was teaching at the beginning of each class, I would explain to students that we would cover three sets of materials, stuff that was important, that was critical, and they would use it regularly in their careers. The second set was things, concepts, facts, data that they needed to be able to find. They needed to be aware of it and they needed to be able to find it. The third set of materials were things that some individuals would never use and they would never ever need them. The problem was, given the breadth of experience in the class, we didn't know which was which for each student. So we all waded through it together and each student would determine as we went along what was useful to him or her. Implicit in that approach was my commitment to paying attention to each student, their experience, and to spend time framing concepts in terms of their work worlds. The Stern School Report, I think, falls into the second category. Retain an awareness that it exists so that you can find it. Our third candidate comes from BlackRock. I chose to look at BlackRock because of their stated commitment to considering ESG factors in their investment decisions, and secondly, their size. They had, in early December, $10 trillion in assets under management. Three or four days later, they were down to $8 trillion because the state of Florida chose to withdraw BlackRock managed funds because of their ESG statement. So currently, they're around $8 trillion. The final reason is that BlackRock clearly has the resources to do very sophisticated ESG analysis. BlackRock has stated that they want to provide leadership in this area. BlackRock states that they work to engage companies' management and influence companies' boards. Our objective here is to find out how they measure financial and ESG results, how they combine them or how they measure them separately. The publicly available BlackRock information, that is to someone not having assets under management, and to have assets under management of BlackRock, the minimums depending upon the vehicle you choose, range from 200,000 to 2 million. The publicly available information is detailed, it's articulate, and it's at an overview level. Documents such as the BlackRock Investment ESG Stewardship Primer, their quarterly reports, their listings of holdings, and their report on their own ESG greenhouse gas efforts, stated in the BlackRock Annual GHG Report, are very clear and they're very useful. That information does not provide concrete ESG metrics, as that information would probably be considered proprietary data regarding their holdings. So how do we use BlackRock to assist in our intelligent ESG investing? We use them for Kentucky windage. That's a shorthand for figuring out where you need to aim for the rifle to hit the target where you want it to. My recommendation regarding BlackRock is to read what other investment firms and advisors are reporting about them. BlackRock has said that they intend to lead in this area, so they will have a lot of arrows on their back. You and I will read what others say, mostly sticking to informed investment opinions, will gauge the agenda of the reviewer. What's their bias? Are they pro? Are they con? Why so? And we'll use that information to assess shifts in the ESG world that could be relevant to us. Our fourth choice, key performance indicators. There are three reasons for researching key performance indicators. The first is to see if we can easily 
apply a set of KPIs to our test stock, Microsoft. Second is to sharpen your question asking ability to increase the focus and scope of the questions that you ask. Financial Frameworks is a value investing educational podcast and website. We're not selling a specific solution other than increased knowledge on your part. I know that the quality of your knowledge is directly relatable to the quality of the questions you ask and the quality of the information you find to answer your questions. Our third reason is that since ESG is a developing field and because the other three approaches we looked at were very high level in scope, I would be remiss if I didn't bring you a set of metrics that work from the ground up that are specific, numerical, and cause you to think in very clear terms about just what we're trying to measure in environmental impact terms, as well as investment terms. So in addition to sharpening your focus, maybe some of you, as some of my students did, will ask the question, what if I use the KPIs Lee Han is talking about for starters, and then develop my own set? That's how the ball gets moved forward. A good example of someone doing this is Joel Greenblatt's book, The Little Book of Investing That Beats the Market. And it is a little book, by the way. He looked at existing tools for making value investment decisions, then built his own investing rowboat, wrote the book, created a website, and has provided assistance to individual investors with his very sturdy homegrown method. You could do that as well. That would be incredibly exciting. Now to the ESG-related KPIs. In previous podcasts, I mentioned AllView Systems. Their website is informative and it's clear regarding specific KPIs. They don't give away the keys to their kingdom as they provide advisory services and sell software that analyzes ESG, but they do provide a window into their approach via an Excel spreadsheet. Using Microsoft as our example, I selected Software and Services, one of their 24 industry groups, and within there, the environmental KPIs for the software industry. AllView lists five pairs of KPIs, which record actual usage or consumption along with a benchmark. The KPIs are, number one, percent of energy consumed from renewable and percent of energy consumed from heat power generation. Number two, efficiency energy consumption and its benchmark. Number three, GHG emissions total produced, and its benchmark. Number four, water consumption, and its benchmark. Number five, waste consumption, and its benchmark. Applying these KPIs to Microsoft took a little time, but data for four of the five categories is contained in their annual environmental sustainability report. The environmental sustainability report also contains additional information, such as water reduction versus water replenishment, which may cause you to add some additional KPIs and come up with a more sophisticated tool. My primary point here is that AllView's KPIs are a good starting point if you're an investor that wants to see concrete data for sustainability efforts by your investment. Not hard to modify them. And as I continue with my ESG research, I will look for additional tools that we can use in a similar manner. Okay, we've looked at all four. What are my conclusions and recommendations? We want something that's useful, doesn't take too much time, and it's accurate. So I recommend, number one, you measure safety, your investment safety, 
as mentioned in an earlier podcast, 23, as safety being either significant asset surpluses or a stock price below its intrinsic value or a combination of the both. Number two, measure growth by requiring year-over-year earnings growth of 15% or higher. Number three, apply the CDP rating for ESG performance. It's available at their website. It's no cost. It's clear. It's solid. And invest in only those with an A rating. As I've said before, if you need to do additional research, go to the company. And if you are after a quick vetting process, use the CDP rating. Now I would like to add a piece of perspective that I think could be very useful to you. I believe that perspective is important. I believe it was the historian Friedrich here who said, what history looks like depends on where you're sitting. So I will add a footnote here because I think it's important to realize within a larger context, a specific why of why we're spending this time and attention on ESG. It has to do with what we choose to look at. Sometimes that takes effort. I learned a long time ago when I was learning to drive tractors in Western Iowa, and when my dad was patiently trying to teach me to drive in preparation for my learner's permit, that a car will usually go in the direction that you're looking. So don't focus on the ditch, pay attention to the physics of the situation. In looking at ESG investing variables, I believe that an investor is wise to take a longer view of profitability and that including ESG factors, cost factors, into the return on investment equation that were not easily measurable 15 years ago. And maybe they're a little sticky now, but you look for them to become more measurable and therefore accounted for. I believe one of the reasons this is happening is that the investing world is moving slowly away from the efficient market theory in which looking at it from a microeconomic perspective, information was perceived to be perfect. Everybody had all of the same information. Stocks were fairly priced and that it was a purely rational process. The implication there was that sustainable returns above the market indices were impossible to achieve. I think the market is moving to a more behavioral finance approach to looking at the process, assuming that humans are not always rational and that there are emotional factors in the market. Information is not perfect and significant returns can be sustained over a significant period of time. Peter Lynch would agree with that. In the old view, the microeconomic view, many investors believe that the purpose of a business is simply to make money. Nothing more, nothing less. I always liked Theodore Levitt's dictum in The Marketing Imagination, which is not a new book. He states, rather than merely making money, the purpose of a business is to create and keep a customer. That definition encompasses all sorts of behaviors into the profitability formula, which may include long-term benefits at immediate or short-term costs. It may include paying higher income taxes. There's a second perspective element that I think is equally important, and that is to remember to keep your original purpose and keep your perspective personal and grounded. Again, our original purpose here is to develop skills for gauging the financial future that will enable you to 
commit to actions that are profitable and successful investments. As Peter Lynch points out, you have some advantages. You're not a committee for one thing. You have access to potential investments all around you if you look around and apply your knowledge and your focus to what you know. I was thinking about that after a conversation with one of my nephews. He is intelligent, he's curious, he's perceptive, he's smart, and he works in the world of machines. We were talking about the future of machines, the future of the environment, the regulatory world, where it's all going. Every conversation I have with him, I learn something, and I usually walk away chewing on things, thinking and asking more questions about what we've talked about. In this case, what will machines look like in 15 years? Coincidentally, I have begun rereading a book from long ago, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. Kuhn reminds us that change is bumpy, uneven, messy, unpredictable, and subject to changes in perspective. Similar to his radical shift in looking at science well after he'd gotten his PhD in physics because he took a course in the history of science. The world was different to him. So let's apply both our very grounded and knowledgeable questions and Kuhn's perceptions to ESG. Is Tesla the last word in electric vehicles? I don't think so. If what happens when a Tesla battery is ruptured during an accident is any indicator, Will changes have occurred in renewable energy production in the next 10 years? Let's say we're looking back at changes. Yes, there will be changes. Will Exxon, Royal Dutch Shell, and other large traditional fuel companies evolve to meet changing shapes of markets, demands, and needs? Of course they will. My point. Keep in mind that the financial world is changing, and at the same time, do not underestimate what you know and how you can apply that knowledge to investing decisions. Your on-the-ground knowledge is very important. That covers it. As noted earlier, all sources cited will be posted on my website, finframeworks.com. I hope that you have found this tour of the ESG landscape in search of usable measuring tools helpful. While I believe there is more to do in this area to have a more solid grounding in ESG and to anticipate changes, I will shift focus somewhat in the next podcast to outline some additional practical issues and then talk about value investing in 2023 and look at expectations with a nod to our current economic situation. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to seeing you next time. Mike Lee in Financial Frameworks.